Caliendo cast with Frank Caliendo, John Holmes. You know what? That's good enough. See, what happened, Michael, is uh, last podcast, we had Dennis Miller on. He came on and just started destroying me, my background, everything. <laughs> and we had to cut in halfway through because I hadn't pressed record yet. And that's the best stuff is when uh, the guest is coming in and just going crazy on you, especially when that's their thing and you're kind of in awe of it. And we're just sitting there and I'm going, stop, stop. And I had the highest voice ever. I, yeah. I hate when my voice goes high and it was at it was that dog whistle. Hey, guys, please. It was, Leno's listening to me going, hey, could you bring it down a little bit? <laughs> so our guest is Michael Lombardi. Uh, you're, uh, as always, uh, Scott Long, John Holmberg, and me. Uh, just so you know, we started as a sports podcast, Michael. And we'll, uh, we were talking about hard knocks. John Holmberg, or John Holmberg, uh, John That's Gruden, right. same guy, man, we're same guy, I tell you what, um, but it was all hard knocks, and then uh, we just started going off on tangents, and people started liking that more, because most of our theories were based on Holmberg, who is out there so much that, uh, you know, sometimes people are like, that can't be possible, then his stuff comes true, and people are like, holy shit, the, the NFL really is the WWE, this is incredible, so, um, uh, Michael Lombardi, uh, by the way, this is the podcast for Scott Long, uh, who, who's a member of. The oh, team. my God, Mike. Michael, let me tell you, I have. Li- that wasn't even an listen- entrance for you. Yeah, that's how no, that's no, no, much no. he wanted to get it. No, go ahead. Go ahead. No, no, no. Oh, listen, the door down like fat I, out and into a room. <laughs> you are my you're my favorite. I oh. have followed you in all 15 places you've been in the last 10 yeah. years. Yeah. I mean, it's amazing. All the different. Have you if you sat down and listed? I mean, are you eligible for unemployment since you have so many ten ninety nines? I mean, it's been like the- all over. I went back in the league, and then you know I come back out, and then I went to work, and then I went to Fox. So I mean, look, I've been blessed. I've been fortunate. I've been b- bounced. To, I mean, I'm in a really good spot. I could talk about football. I don't bet, but I love to talk about the matchups of the game. And so, yeah, I'm in a room and and I've always wanted to write the book. I mean, that was the big thing for me was I knew that, you know, I was blessed in the sense that I I was around the greatest coaches of all time and the most interesting man of all time. And oh, fuck Al Davis. I mean, you know, who couldn't really (laughs) understand that? You know, he always called him Coach Gruden. Coach Gruden. what, 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 What do you think about that? I think we got some great ideas coming back from beyond the grave, man. But guess what? There's two of us. You're going to hear us in stereo. And then (laughs) the best part, the best part was Al would call John coach and John would call Al coach. So they were both coach, (laughs) but, but I got to tell you, like, like if you could have been in the car with Al Davis so we had this guy, Jack Barhite, who was kind of a jack of all trades at the Raiders. He worked in the scouting department, but he was also a, a Frank Caliendo wannabe guy. And he had this incredible, so he would drive Al around. And he got to the point where he would drive Al home at night. And so Al would get on the phone, and this is before Bluetooth and the headsets. So it was just a speaker in the car, you know, and and he'd and she'd answer the phone and Jack would do Mrs. Davis's voice. Hello. And she had this high voice and he would say, 
oh, the great Wally is coming fucking home. And <laughs> he would say, and what does the great Wally want for dinner? And then he would say, oh, you know, I, I, I like uh, uh, English, uh, English cut prime rib. Uh, uh, I like my fries, you know, 11 of them. <laughs> Uh, uh, shrimp cocktail, you know, and then they would go through the whole thing. And it was like, and then he would call and then Barheight would do the impersonation. And it was just like, oh, you know, it, it was way too good. It, I, I don't do it justice. I don't do it. You would, you, if you could have heard it, right. You could have, you guys could have done it justice. Well, here's a, we usually, like I said, we have lots of theories and we never have any inside information uh, or have never been there in the, at the executive level and stuff like that. So I'm, uh, that's one of the reasons uh, I wanted you on to actually uh, affirm or let us know how crazy we are on some uh, of our ideas here. I was watching and let's, let's go through. You've, you've worked with uh, the 49ers, uh, won a Super Bowl there. Um, Uh, which Holmberg has plenty of theories on them as well. <laughs> um, was that? Yeah, your, your theory of breaking up the whole team. Um, oh, yeah, no, yeah that's, that's not a theory, Frank. When they're real, you can't <laughs> call them theories anymore. It's like, you know, you have to read some Einstein on that and understand that theories become reality after a while, and I'm pretty sure I nailed that. Uh, and uh, worked with Belichick alongside Belichick, uh, which is, uh, I love Michael Lombardi, does a tremendous yeah. job. And uh, <laughs> So good. I, I I always wonder because you you you're very close with them. Uh, I didn't know that until Scott told me every five seconds on text. Do you, do you really know how, how, how much? How much I love Michael Lombardi. Oh, Scott, <laughs> you're the best. You're the best. I, and you're a White Sox fan. I see. Could you have any oh, more yeah. White Sox stuff up there at all? I mean, I love I got it. More than that. look at look at that. Look at these old posters. They even got the Senior Bowl there from '68. I love it. Belichick wrote. The intro to the Gridiron Genius, which is the greatest football book by far. You have to buy it. You will learn more than you've learned in your life about the NFL just reading that book. And I've said it before, before Michael was here. So yeah, absolutely. Uh, I, this is not. This isn't bullshit. This is <laughs> no. this is the real deal. Michael, he's the one. You would retweet some stuff, and I knew a little bit about you, and yeah. as it was coming along. And Scott would say, "You don't realize. You have to listen to what he's saying because he yeah. doesn't give a shit." about what anybody thinks. He's one of the only no. people who actually speaks his mind. It's it, and like, we've been going through this thing when we had Miller on last, Miller on last week. Billy. Uh, when we had him on last week, uh, or earlier in the week, actually, he's like, Frank, you gotta, don't give a shit what people say, Chachi. I mean, uh, you gotta go ahead and just do what you're doing. Don't worry. And that's one of the things I've struggled with. Holmberg, John Holmberg, He's one. He's on the radio here in Phoenix, and uh, just beyond brilliant. And that's his whole take on life: is I'm just going to talk and say what I believe, what I think is funny and good. And if you don't like it, complain about me. But I'm not apologizing. Yeah. And uh, so that seems to be one of the uh, mantras, or one of the w- one of the continuing through lines for my life, even in guests that we're finding. That I think a lot of successful people don't worry about what everybody's saying about them. They go and they tell their truth and what what they believe in and how they believe they should let people know about it. And it's, it's teaching me a lot because I've been stuck in this corporate crap forever where I'm just uh, acquiescing to the powers that be all the time and making sure I'm, I'm safe. Yeah. Um, but I, I'll even tweet out Belichick stuff and you're, you're in close with him and you'll tweet it out. So, but he's probably got, he probably doesn't care about anything anybody's saying ever. 
I mean, he really, he taught me that. It's like, you know, what do you give a shit about what they say? They have no idea what they're talking about. And like the humor, like he likes funny stuff. Like he would find that really funny. And, and he's he, a funny, he's a funny guy, right? Like, like, yeah, he laughs and he gets it, you know, now it's hard <laughs> to get in his inner circle, but yeah, I mean, he's got a sense of humor and he thinks it's hilarious and, you know, he'll send a funny video that he thinks is funny. I mean, <laughs> yeah. Hold on. What's a video he sent you? <laughs> Dude, <I'm not> <laughs> hey, we want to hear this. <laughs> I got to think about that one for a look while. At, it's, listen, been, it's, at, been a, look, it's been a while since I've gotten one. Look at these I'm, two orangutans there right now. <laughs> yeah. Or how yeah. about this? Look, Usually they're Texas more than anything. But this kid, but just, I mean, this this woman, this man just dropped a... a, a, a you know, a, a, it, would, it would have gone, and now look, it looks like it's banging moron. some Look at this fucking moron. That's what it usually would have been. It's like, usually everybody has some kind of nickname, like, you know, but I think this, you know, like I'm not, look, I obviously I've had a lot of jobs. So obviously I'm not very politically savvy. Uh, so I just say what I, I mean. I don't have, I have a hard time saying what people think. I, I don't really want to do that. You know, I, I can't right. really live like that. And, and I don't really care. Like, I, you know, what? it kills me. You go on political shows and there's always the right. And everybody says it right. Everybody says whatever they think. And it's OK. You, you know, you know, it, you know, you, you end up having a conversation with it. It's just your different parts of it. But in football or basketball or any sport, you're not allowed to say a bad word. It's like, you know, yeah. you can't say a bad word about a co- Like last night we did the draft. OK, I talked about this on my podcast. Last night we did a draft. We have 17,000 people on the dra- covering the draft from all over the place, right? And there was nobody that's ever made a draft pick of all the 17,000 people that did the draft. <laughs> I mean, so we basically had a cooking show without any cooks in the show. <laughs> right? <laughs> They've never even farmed. No, yeah. exactly. I mean, like, look, Lewis Riddick's tremendous. He works hard, and so does Mel Kuyper, and so does all. But they've never actually said, okay, here's the pick. You know, now, I've never had the authority to run an entire draft myself and said, okay, everybody get out of the fucking way Lombardi's running. I've never had that authority, but I've at least made trades, and I've turned in picks. And I'm, But they, we had a draft. I mean, we got Booger McFarlane, love the guy, nice guy, right? But he's never been in a draft room. Right, yeah. And they would say the same kind of about you, though. You've never been on the field, so you don't know what how to analyze that kind of play. Right. And, and my and my answer to that is, look, I've studied enough tape that, you know, maybe I didn't pass. I mean, Boomer was just ripping me about uh, Tua Tagaloa, about what I said about his injuries. And I'm like, look, maybe I didn't throw the ball to Eddie Brown. But if you want to talk about what football is about, I think I got a pretty good idea. Yeah. So I'm not saying I'm the smartest guy in the league. I'm not saying that at all. But if we want to talk football, we'll talk football. Mike, let me ask you this, because yesterday was interesting for me to watch, because I've watched the draft a lot lately. It seems like, and I, and I was in the Cardinals draft room about, God, it had to be almost 20 years ago. They let people sit in, not their draft room, but they would sit and you saw what they were doing from inside their facility as a member of the media, and then they'd come out and talk to you after. But it seemed chaotic 20 years ago to watch that. It had to be more chaotic as it's gone on. But yesterday seemed super calm, like this might be a better scenario for the managers and owners and everybody to interact than it would be in that draft room. The draft room looks nuts. Yesterday, Cliff Kingsbury was yeah. sitting just feed up two laptops and a TV and a beer. And it's like, this is easier this way. Yeah. Which would you have preferred? Well, I think that this way it, it takes away all the people that pretend they're involved, but they're really not involved. So you got this whole room of draft people right in there that are all, you know, that none of them really are making a the decision. They're just there for the, for the pitcher. 
Whereas there's about three people in every organization that really ultimately know what's going on. And, and I think that this streamlined it, this really streamlined it. So it was a lot easier and you can make, you can make the decisions. I think the, like in Belichick's draft, there's five people. That's it. You know, the yeah. crafts sit in there. Uh, Nick, there's about five of us that were in there and that's it because that's all that needs to be in there for the draft. So, but most other teams have every scout in there and everybody's in there and, and that's not ever good. And the information gets out. So, you know, yeah, I, I think Kyle Shanahan's kids and him as relaxed as he was, I'm like, they put so much undue stress on themselves. Normally, this seems like they should want this way. No, I definitely think they do. And it helps, it helps to keep the people, you know, but I think everybody, oh, you know, scouts want to be involved. They want to stay, you know, I get that, but there's only two or three people making a decision because there's really only two or three people that understand the total board. You know, yeah. there's, you know, like the Cowboys are sitting there picking, do they take CD lamb or do they take, or they take some, a corner, you know, there's only two or three people that know the, the, the level of, of who's the better player. So it's a lot of theatrics, you know. What was your take on that Jerry Jones story where nobody can stop Jerry Jones? That's just <laughs> clickbait. Is that basically what that is? Because I, I believe that I will just make uh, the choices that I uh, uh, intended Parce- to make in the first place. Uh, he, as Parcells would say, he could talk the cat off the top of a fish truck. He is really good. <laughs> he is really good. He's so good. Like you just get mesmerized, and when you do him, I like I get mesmerized into him. I mean, it's so good. And, uh, you know, I, I think uh, I think that Jerry kind of playing some tongue in cheek there a little bit, because, look, let's face it. Jerry's not watching all these players, even though he want him to think he's the general manager. Will McClay does a hell of a job for Jerry, stays in the background, feeds him the information. And then Jerry comes out there and says, oh, look, you know, it's like Wink Martindale. OK, here's the card. I'm going to read it and we're going to make this pick. I've always thought that Jerry Jones was capable, but hasn't done it yet, of making the 20th pick first. <laughs> <laughs> just tell everybody i'm gonna go ahead and make that pick now if you don't mind get it <laughs> make that, your that decisions would, that, that would make your decisions favorite. around me yeah, yeah. Uh, uh, you just, just put tyree kill on my team please yeah. that's what he would say all the time like just uh, i'll put, put him on my team you know like well you got to draft them to get him on your team oh oh fuck i don't want the details just put them on my team <laughs> <laughs> Oh, man. So I, I also wanted to know uh, what you think, like as a member of the media and as a member of the guy who's been in the draft room, uh, what is the deal with the media being so fixated on who the most recent death in the family was for the draft pick versus what you guys talk about in the draft room? That can't possibly be as big a deal in the draft as the, as ESPN makes it. I, I'm convinced. Uh, Scott's probably heard my podcast. I'm convinced Syracuse, where they teach these producers how to produce TV shows, has like a, a section of their department up there that they you have to do human interest stories in the draft. Like you have to, you know, and it's the only way people are going to pay attention because the little old lady sitting in Des Moines really doesn't care about the draft, but she'll watch the human. Like we combine the draft with today, you know, like. Let's combine like we're, sometimes the draft becomes the last hour of the Today Show. Let's talk human interest. You know, I'm surprised in the middle that Goodell doesn't put a cooking show on. Like, OK, I, you know, <laughs> couldn't you see Goodell coming over with Stanley Tucci making a cocktail in the middle of the show? Like well, I could see it. him reading off a teleprompter doing it. That's <laughs> right. a lot. He read off the teleprompter a lot. That that young kid from St. Jude's Hospital read off that teleprompter way better than certain people. I won't mention any names. Read yeah. off the teleprompter. However, that being said. <laughs> I think it's like sometimes we think we have to entertain people with 
the draft is draft nicks. Like there's people that just love the draft. They love the intrigue. They love about what's going on. And that's what I don't understand. Like, why don't we have somebody who's actually been in a room talking about what goes on in the room? Yeah. You know, like, let's have a room of yeah. former general managers sitting there saying, okay, like I watched the draft last night and I knew Jerry was debating. Like you could just, I could tell by Jerry's face, he either had gas or he had a tough decision, right? <laughs> so, you know, he knew that C.D. Lamb wasn't going to make it to him. You know, and so he never, they never played that scenario in their heads. So right. you could just see it in his face. Whereas, you know, I, I mean, I could see it in his face. Like that would have been good. Hey, here's the situation. You know, and I didn't need anybody to tell me it was C.D. Lamb. I knew it. You could just say they never thought it. And then when Atlanta picked before him, don't tell me Atlanta had C, said A.J. Terrell rated higher than C.D. Lamb. Like that's the question to ask. Right. But we Instead don't- of wondering how many dead bodies, because literally a phrase I heard last night was he stepped over dead bodies to go to school. Yeah. And I'm like, that is horrifying. He's in a war zone. Let's get into that more. The human interest is that this guy's being drafted, that his life just changed. Not that he was, you know, he's right. and that's pretty- and John, to your point, that's tainting totally what their moment is. And I will tell you this, Michael, I think that this is because I've talked about this a little bit before. A lot of producers in sports are bored with sports. Yeah. And they try to, and I would part, I, I, I could be, I could be considered part of that issue. Like when they created the, the, the comedy portion of the NFL on Fox for Jimmy Kimmel and then brought me on, people will say, well, that's when sports got terrible is because they <laughs> combined entertainment uh, with sports too much. Although it was confined just to that segment uh, but I see it. I see it all the time. Uh, you talk to producers and they're not worried about the element of sport. I don't believe people outside of, of true football fans care that much and are watching the draft last night. That's a very specific hard. It's not it's not incredibly hardcore and that specific, but it's more specific than people that watch uh, Sunday night football or the biggest game of the week. This is people who really care and it's either their business or their life. Uh, and they're the ones watching it. And then to put all the fluff around it and not that that's, uh, you know, I, I, there's also the element of PR for the NFL when people are saying things like, Hey, they shouldn't even be doing this. Well, we talked about this before on the podcast as well. No, it's hope. It's hope that there will be a season right. and there yeah. will be, Something, uh, 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 you know, uh, uh, a semblance of similar uh, uh, sameness in our uh, regular lives coming back to us. That's why the draft is great. But then to me, and uh, I just uh, I watched a lot of that. I was like, "Ah, you guys, there's uh, listen, we care about people, but it's almost like it doesn't feel real after a little while of watching it and listening to it because you're going every time. And you can see people just want to get to their business, too. So it it didn't feel 100 percent real to me, although. (laughs) Not that people didn't care about the, uh, you know, these people with COVID. But those people are going to look into it. Those fans of that team are going to look into that guy's history. I know nobody really likes it because whenever somebody has a birth announcement, you don't call them and say, boy, I bet his, I bet his grandpa would be really happy, but it's too bad because his grandpa's dead. You don't tell people that when they're having a joyous moment. You don't bring up a tragedy in their lives. You just celebrate that moment. That was what was weird to me. Yeah, yeah. I, I think I think if I was producing a draft, I would literally have a draft room, 
And I would have yeah. people sitting around like it was the draft, like here's your draft and, you know, and here's our boards and here's the guy coming off. And when somebody doesn't go with Mel's board and all of a sudden it's a committed sin, you know, like you violated <laughs> the Geneva <laughs> rules. Like, okay, you know, like seriously, like Mel's board isn't the only board, you know? And so, you know, and, and, and so I, I just think there's, Look, that you know they, they haven't changed how they do it, and people want to know what goes on in those rooms. They want to know about the phone calls. They want to know about how things are shaping up and how there's a trade board and all that. And it was a great, but you know when you have all these guys talking about one player, and did anybody say a negative word about any player last night? No, no, that was crazy, right? I mean, they would not badmouth even a pick. It was just there were some picks that were kind of out of left field, and it used to be. Even Mel would rip people, and now it's what – I mean, I'm sure you noticed this, Mike. It was more like, well, that was a little bit of a surprise or maybe a little bit of a reach. Where it used to be, guys would get blasted for this. It was way too congenial. I mean, didn't you feel that way? I mean, like everybody's happy. Like I write this for the Daily Coach. So I write this Daily Coach. It was an email newsletter every morning. Uh, uh, George Raveling, one of the greatest human beings of all time, he, he owns the uh, I Have a Dream speech, Kamadi Ramsey, Alec. Uh, so we, we all kind of write it together. And we wrote about Ryan Pace's draft room when he turned in MVP Mitch and how everybody was smiling. Like I've never been a part of an organization where if everybody's happy, you've really done the right thing. Like if everybody, like Walsh used to say all the time, if we're all getting along, if we're all thinking alike, ain't no one thinking. So like that can't be. And you have to have somebody, you know, like the, like when Mayock, when the Raiders, like I think the Raiders first round pick was the rugs was a great pick. I think they went right. off the board. That was great. I agree with you, Michael. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you. You know, next time you keep doing John, you got to get the white out on the hand. Like, <laughs> there's always white out on his hand. Like, and then tell you what, man, I'll grab a pair of those Wreck It Ralph hands, man. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, so like, but the second round, the the second one was like that's a complete reach. Like, the, there's issues with the kid in terms of where is he, you know, and then like, and then moving to Vegas, then going to Vegas. There you go, but boom. Like, here's a guy that's got some stuff in his background that I don't want to get into on the, but. He's now going to Vegas. Like you got to, if you're building a team in Vegas, it's going to be a lot different team than you're building one in Green Bay where there ain't nothing to do. No disrespect to Green Bay, Wisconsin, but you better make sure that the players you bring to Vegas, you know, cause I don't know how many strip clubs there are in Vegas, but you, you know, you gotta, you gotta make sure your players are somewhat That's what, you know, Tampa, Miami, there's new Orleans. You're the GM of those teams. You got to make sure your character, your players are not going to afford, and they're not going to be out running the streets every single night. And and I don't think we ever talked about that. That's a sketch yeah. I want to do with Gruden. Is uh, I can't wait till everybody comes to play us in Vegas. Here's all the different things you can do. Over <laughs> here's the Lady Leg Club. <laughs> or play yeah. the slots. You like to gamble? Stay yeah. up all night Saturday <laughs> night playing playing some. Playing, playing some high limit slots, man. This will be tremendous. That was me looking at you, John. You would have thought. Yeah. <laughs> the better part is too they could have the team drop off like a bunch of, uh, you know, different the way they do the cards or free shows just in every every player's room. <laughs> yeah. And yeah, they're yeah they're getting all this stuff. Hey man, you want to come down to the club? We'll get you in free and yeah. get the whole team in. Yeah, Vegas is going to be a tough one, and this year's especially bad because they didn't get to interview them as much as they'd like meet their friends, do all that kind of stuff, which has uh -huh. to be huge. 
mean, and you're taking guys and, you know, I, I mean, look, they're, they're, the character assessment is the hardest thing we have to do in terms of these players because you don't really know what they're truly like. But How important was that to you, character? Uh, because I see some people, I think some people, it's the number one thing. I've talked to a couple people that I do know, uh, GMs and even other execs, and they're, the most important thing to them is, can I trust this guy to love football and care so much that he can do it as a job and not get in trouble? And there are other guys that just go, how can he play? I just, that's all I need to know is can he play? Right. John Dorsey. Yeah, that was Dorsey. Dorsey was the Al Davis of his job. I, I, I don't care about what he does. I, I just need him to play good. It's the coach's job. You know, that's what he would say. And like for me with Belichick, it was all about, you know, can the guy do what we want him to do? Is Does the guy love football? Like, for example, if you were to grade people, this is where people get confused on is some people work really hard. OK, and then they don't compete very well. But some people don't work hard, but they compete their ass off. As a scout, you'll take the guy that doesn't work hard but competes his ass off. The guy that kills you is the guy who works hard but doesn't compete because on Sunday he lays down. So you got to figure that one out too, you know. And then when they tell you, oh, this guy's a hard worker, this guy, you know, like define what hard worker is. And the coaches at the schools, they're not going to tell you the truth because they don't want to hurt their recruiting. So you got to right. dig around and try to find the information. And it's hard. I who mean, would you go to? Who would you? Who are people that you go to to try and get this information? Well, I mean, Scott knows I hired this girl when I was in Cleveland. Her name was Carly McCord. She unfortunately died in this plane crash right before the, the, the final, the conference, the, the championships game, uh, the final four games in college football. She was on an airplane that crashed. But I hired her. And her job was to basically interview the players as – not that she was with the Browns, but she was like, and I got more information from just her than any scout we had on the staff. It was a remarkable. What you have to do is create a setting that the players don't think you're interviewing them. Right. Is it sort of a setup? Can you send somebody down there to set them up? They don't even know you're sending. Exactly. And, the, and, and so when I first got started in the league in 84, you went to the college football campus. You went to the office. Today, if you go to – Texas A&M, don't go to the football office, go to the security office and find the local bar that the players hang out at and then go talk to every bartender in that bar. Uh-huh. And then you're going to find out about those kids, what, who's in there, where they hang out. You know what this, this, this sounds like? The, the television show, The Americans. So yeah. <laughs> spying. So the Patriots are the Americans. I'm sorry to interrupt, but that, that was just the analogy that, that hit me. You have to find out information when they don't think you're looking. I, one year, Jim Schwartz, the great defense coordinator for the, for the Eagles, he was with us in Cleveland. We sent him to the Playboy All-American uh, weekend it, right there in Phoenix, Arizona. He used to have it at, the, at, the, at, at one of the big hotels, Biltmore. And, and they would, the, all the kids would come in, and literally we sent Schwartz there, and Schwartz didn't wear anything that said Cleveland Browns. He just watched all the kids. And then when he came back, he wrote everyone up. Oh, so dead on about the kids, the personalities, because they didn't know he was from the Browns. They, they thought he was a security guard or a janitor. They're just going to they don't care. And so we knew more about the play. That's how you have to do it today, because that's where you get burnt with players. And especially if you're in Vegas, you know, John's, you know, th- there's a good point. Teams that fly into Vegas, they ain't staying on the strip. They'll be staying out in Henderson. They'll be under lock and key. They won't mm-hmm. come into the town. You know, they'll go to the stadium and they'll leave. Whereas the players that live there year round, that's the one that's the trouble. Do you ever put on a wig, mustache, and glasses and pretend to be somebody? 
sorry. You ever do an yeah, accent? I, I, you know, I, I went to college. I'm old. So I went to college and the Rockford Files was on. I went to new school at Hofstra University in New York. And every every uh, night at 12 o'clock on, on Channel 11 in New York, the Rockford Files was on. I think I learned more about from Jim Rockford than about how to, how to do that than anybody. Jim Rockford always had these fake business cards he would pass out, you know, and yeah, that's hell yeah. I got the greatest television theme songs of all time. Oh, the the best, the best. Yeah. Unbelievable. Unreal. It's still And good. then I find out David Chase wrote that and I'm like, holy shit, that's so good. You know, yeah. I didn't you know, <laughs> yeah, the Sopranos. Yeah, he was the writer for Rockford yeah. Files. He was the yeah. writer, but 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 Rockford would always have, you know, he would have those business cards and then he would always pretend he was doing, you know, somebody else. And I got I actually got Michael Irvin to work out for me playing the Rockford gig. So I called Michael Irvin on the phone and I said, I pretended I was Marty Schottenheimer. I said, Hey, Michael, I'm Marty Schottenheimer. Oh, hey, Marty, how are you? Now, this is before cell phones, right? I said, Michael, I'm coming down to work you out. I got to have you work out. And so he said, Oh, yeah, I'll work out for you, Coach Schottenheimer. I'll work out for you. Don't worry. So I show up on campus and he sees this fat, t- fat Italian short kid. He's like, Who are you? I said, Well, Marty couldn't make it. I'm here. He said, I ain't working out for you. Out for you. And then, what? At what point does talent outweigh that? You go through, you find out he's a security risk, but the kid's just too good. Yeah, Do you it, have a moment where it's yeah. like, we'll, we'll try to lasso it in? Now, you know, it, you, you can't, it, it's always going to catch you up. But here's where Michael was so good. Here's where you knew Michael wasn't a bad kid. So I went and started working out some other kids and Michael watched it and he's so competitive. He's like, oh shit, I can do that way better than they can. And he came over and worked out for me anyway. So you knew he was going to, you know, but you, you can't outrun problems. They always come back. And then here's the other problem. When you give them money, those problems become bigger problems. Right. Hey, one of the positions I've always wondered this when is, are there certain positions that you feel a, a rookie can step in and do a better job than other positions? And does that ever play into, like, I look at the Patriots and when you're in the Patriots system, it's so detailed that I would think a lot of rookies would struggle trying to find a spot. Are there certain positions that you can slide in easier? I'm guessing maybe wide receiver, but maybe I don't know. The Patriots receivers are hard because hey, yeah. Tom, Tom was hard on receivers. Like if you didn't run the right route at the right base, I mean, Tom would like, get that guy off the field. Like, no, I can't, I don't trust him. You know, that was a big word. Offensive line. We got a lot of young players to play. And that was good. We got defensive backs to play. Malcolm Butler played as a rookie, you know, as, a, as, a, as an undrafted guy, made the play right there in Glendale. So, yeah, I mean, certain positions, but offensively, the skill, especially around Tom. Tom wanted to trust the player, and he had the hardest time trusting young players. That's why Gronk comes back. Gronk, he'll trust Gronk to be at 15 on a certain route. He'll trust Gronk to be at 10, and he'll throw him the ball, whereas if it was somebody else, he wouldn't. Hmm. How much of that do you think was Tom looking at tape of O.J. Howard? <laughs> I think probably. I don't know. You know, I think probably Tom wants O.J. Howard. I don't know how. How do you play O.J. Howard, Cameron Brait, and Gronk at the same time and then tell Mike Evans and Chris Godwin, hey, hey by the way, guys, you stand on the sideline. We got these three tight ends on here. It would be like playing chess with a bunch of horses. You know, like at some point the queen and the, and the bishop got to come on the, on the chess field, right? So I don't know how that's going to work out. Well, following up on that, like Frank is a, a friend of uh, Bruce Arians, and we were talking about this, I don't know, when Brady came to the Buccaneers. How much do you think they're going to run Brady's offense? Because it's very different than the Arian style. 
Uh, John Holmberg's a huge Steeler fan, and he remembers Roethlisberger and, and Andrew Luck ran a similar offense where those guys would get killed. And same with Carson Palmer. You can't do that with Tom, right? Well, before, before he says something, let me tell you something, Daddy. Oh. That's why I'm going to work this right in here, Daddy. That, uh, I haven't changed costume for this shit. Uh, what the fuck is going on here? Let's just, we're going to do whatever the fuck Tom Brady wants. Goodbye. <laughs> I, I, I mean, Bruce just said it right there. I think they're going to do what Tom wants, you know, because Tom doesn't throw the deep ball down the field like like that's not his great. That's not his greatest strength. He's a middle of the field from the hash marks in thrower and all those over routes and kind of crossers. And I, I think they'll run his off. I think I think Bruce is smart enough to say, Tom, you do it. And it looks like they're letting Tom. I mean, by just tr- getting Gronk in there. They lowered Brate's salary. Yeah, I think I think it's going to be whatever Tommy wants. But isn't that dangerous? As successful as Bruce Arians has been, the one knock I always had when he was the Steelers coordinator and when he moved on to Indy and everywhere else, he came to Arizona, the quarterbacks were top three uh, in sacks every year. They were getting hit. His quarterbacks get hit. So, Bruce, you think he's just going to acquiesce and say Tom Brady gets to do whatever he wants? He's got, he's got to have some say because he's had success, just not – and Tom Brady wasn't running the offense. No, great success, and he throws it down the field. And, and again, you know, his yards per attempt are big. I, I, I think Tom's best thing are, are, are reading the defense, throwing the ball to the open guy quickly, get the ball out of his hand quickly, you know, and he don't want to hold the ball very long, not because he, he doesn't like it. He just he knows how to spread the ball around. I think it's going to be fascinating. It, it, if you were to tell me two different offenses, it, I would have never predicted this would have happened. Yeah. You know, now we're talking about New England. Uh, you know, and I know you don't really, I've, I listen to the show every week with GM street. I, I guess my c- concern is, okay, they're going to stick with the Auburn Auburn kid to be their yeah. quarterback. And then do we know now that the draft's over, do they look at a Winston or a Newton? Where are things at now? Well, I think, you know, they've had some, you know, they have cap issues. So, cause it, you know, with, between Brady, between Antonio Brown, between Kuskowski, I mean, there were 25 million of dead money that they've lost. So, uh, they're going to have to do something with Joe Tooney's contract to, to at least give them an opportunity. I think they'll look at a cam. I really do. I think they love Stidham. I think they think Stidham's a good player, but I think they got to at least owe it to their franchise, but they can't physical cam because we're all in this, you know, we can't go anywhere. So I think that's right. it up. I don't think the Winston thing, Winston's had some off the field stuff that usually the Patriots try to stay away from. So I, I don't think that one will be it, the case, but I do think they're going to explore. They should explore Cam Newton. I mean, seriously, it's 2015. He's the league MVP. He's 15 and one. Were like, you surprised when, when the Patriots took Antonio Brown? Having said that, were you? Was that something you were like? This seems to me, it seemed forced by the league. You know, I think Tom really wanted it. I think it was really important because losing Gronk, and then you know, for, now my son, uh, my son is the receiver is now the receiver coach. He was assistant quarterback coach. But my son tells some great Antonio Brown story. He said for 13 days, he was the model child up there. Yeah. He was unbelievable. And and Michael, we were, at, we were at Raiders camp one, day, one night when they were in Arizona. They couldn't find him. His MO in Pittsburgh was model citizen, model citizen. Don't slide off this ice because it gets ugly quick. And then model citizen. It was like you kept reprimanding and reeling him in. I mean – it, it didn't surprise me when everybody said, oh, he's perfect. He's a perfect team. And I'm like, just wait. Yeah, and I, and I think 13 days was a small sample size for the Patriots. 
But yeah. I, I, I was surprised. I think Tom would like to have him in Tampa. I think there's no doubt. I think Bruce put the kibosh on that one. Yeah, I wouldn't doubt that because, yeah, he's not had good good relationships with a lot of coaches. People don't even realize that yeah. he's been the prima donna since three three years into his career. So yeah, last no, night's I, draft, what do you uh, – what do you – What's a big story that, that you're thinking about today? You're thinking about uh, Love getting drafted by Packers. I hear everybody talking about that. There were some early predictions by people on that. And then when it happened, people were like, I can't believe it happened. What well, you were talking about it, you know, possibly happened. I asked a scout for – not a scout. I asked somebody that, that, I, that, that I trust in the league. I said, do you think that the Packers think that Aaron's kind of on the wrong way down? And, they, and, and the guy answered me back and said, yeah, I, I think they're worried about it. Look, since 2015 – to 2019, Aaron Rodgers averages 7.1 yards per attempt. Now, in the NFL, to be really successful, that has to be over eight. You have to be over eight. I mean, Mahomes is in the nines. You know, it, it, you've got to be able to throw the ball down the field and make plays. You can't go three yards, three yards. Woody Hayes doesn't exist. So, and, and people say, well, it's because Rodgers hasn't had a lot of weapons. Well, Devontae Adams is a good player, and Aaron Jones is a good player. He just hasn't been able to make plays down the field. So to see a decline in a quarterback, you tend to look at that yards per attempt very closely. And I think the last five years, you can see it. Now, does that mean it's over with for him? Absolutely not. He can still be a good player. But as a GM, you got to prepare the future of your franchise. But he's and gotten I, hurt a lot, too. That's the right. other issue is how how fragile will he be as he gets older even though when he was a little bit younger and in that middle, you know, the prime years, he's getting hurt collarbone. Uh, he's getting hurt pretty badly. And, and he doesn't get hit very often. Like he gets rid of that ball quickly now that, you know, and he hates turning his back to the defense. That's why the little floor, you know, when he turns his back to run all those play action passes, like the Rams try to run, you know, you wonder about that. So I, I think it was, a, I really think my dog's barking. I think it's really good. <laughs> okay. It happened to Adam Schefter the other day on, on yeah, ESPN. Really? I'm sorry. Let me get my dogs. Let's hug. And here comes <laughs> Megan with a drink for John. <laughs> so just tell me I was very thirsty. I decided to get a drink. How do you get that service? That's incredible. <laughs> I know. Text. Text the man. Let me ask you this. With the Aaron Rodgers thing, I'm fascinated by this because if I, if uh, just, just my mental state, I'm not a professional athlete, but if somebody comes in, and I'm, let's say I'm an offensive uh, guard and, and I'm in my fifth year and I've done well and the team drafts a guard, I don't have the ability to go to the media and say, I'm not going to help him. Uh, I'm not going to be his uh, mentor. And nobody ever thinks that by any other position. Why in the world would Aaron Rodgers not empathize with Love's situation if, if truly Favre turned his back on him the way he did? Why do quarterbacks get that pass? Uh, you know, I don't know. I, I mean, look, it's a team sport. And I think that, you know, look, Aaron's got his money. I, I mean, does you think Aaron thinks he's going to get another contract after this one? Right. This will be 40 when he gets now. A lot of guys are playing at 40, but that's his name's just Tom Brady. That's the that's the group, you know. And, and when I went to the Patriots in 14, I thought Peyton Manning would still be playing before before t longer than Tom. That's how smart I was. So, you know, I, I, I don't know. I think that, you know, Aaron probably was shocked by it, whether someone at the Packers told him we weren't going to take a quarterback, which could be really problematic if they did that. But you got to be honest with the player. Say, hey, look, you know, we did what's best for the team. We want you to still be the player. We gave you a boatload of money. I mean, you still have our money. Like, you're a pro. Right. we got to keep playing. I mean, you know. But Mike, if you went to a quarterback, let's say you're, you're – and you went to him and said, hey, we're going to groom a guy. we got somebody we like a lot. We think he's a project. He's a couple of years off. 
would you mentor him? If that player said no, isn't that as bad as going to the draft and finding out you got a character issue? Uh, but see, I wouldn't leave it to that. If I was the GM of the Packers, I would say, look, Aaron, you do your thing. We got a coach to coach this kid. You don't have to worry about him. You know, really? it ain't Aaron's job to coach the kid. It's our job to get him ready. And but on the flip side, if you draft a wide receiver, you're hoping the other receivers help. Right. You do, you do, but then, you know, but at some point, you know, when it, that locker room is always about the coin, it's always about the green stuff. So you yeah. got to be careful about that. And it's our job to develop the players, not the other players. I mean, like Larry Fitzgerald does a great job with the receivers. He loves to do it. Some guys do, some guys don't. And it's up to them. It's never like a hint yeah. from a coach saying, we need yeah. your help. No, I mean, we, we, that's what we get paid to do. We get our coach, we got to develop the players. We can't ask the players to develop the players. So when Mike Tomlin says we ask the veterans to help out, is it's bullshit? Well, I mean, he's helping them to show them the leadership, but not to train the players. Ah, okay. Like, what, okay. You, what you wanted to like, why? If you like Aaron Rodgers, like Jordan Love, just watch what Aaron Rodgers does. Watch you don't he don't have to tell you. Just watch what he does. Like right. watch Tom Brady. He's here every morning at six thirty. He's every every day after practice. He's watch Tom Brady. Just watch him. That's all. And if you can't figure out what he's doing, then I can't help you. But in the quarterback room, don't you want Aaron Rodgers to be a little bit of, like, here's what you see? Yeah, I, well, you would hope so. Just human nature, right? Yeah, right. Like, look, I've seen this look a thousand times. This is what they do. But, you know, if he wants to have a – you're going to have to have a conversation with him. I mean, because it's for the good of the team. Remember, we define mental toughness as doing what's right for the team when it might not be right for you. Yeah. After how watching – oh, go ahead, Frank. How many people can live by that? That's a tough – that's just being a professional, right? That's right. just – it's just being a pro. And look, he's got his money. I mean, look, you've been paid. You're going to go to the Hall of Fame. You're one of the great players. You'll, you'll get a street named after you here, too. Like, we're going to honor, you know, we're not running you out of town. We want you to be a great player. We're going to build everything we can. I, I don't know how else to do it. The one thing I do know, do you remember Bino Cook from ESPN, Frank? Yeah. He had one of the greatest lines of all time. And I think this applies. He said, you know, the kids that play in the Michigan-Ohio State game in the year 2075 uh, are – you know, when that game's played in 2075, it'll be sold out. And the kids are going to play it aren't even born yet. Like the uniform is more important than anything. Right. And the Packer uniform, that Steeler uniform, that's more important than anybody. There's been great ones that have come there. There was Joe Green, all those guys, you know, and Aaron, you're no different. I mean, Lombardi walked this sideline. You know, there's another coach here. You know, Bart Starr played, you know, that's part of the heritage of the team. And you know, when – Keep up with that heritage in order to keep it to where the players continue to to uh, respect right. it in a way. Because right. once that, they let that go, it go, it's gone. It can go that's easy. Exactly right. You can't let that go. That's what you're teaching them. That's what makes the uniform. That's why the teams that don't change their uniforms, you know, that there's that semblance of that. You got to understand your heritage. You know, one of the things that people have you've not, you know, I'm the fanatic of Michael Lombardi. If, if you haven't read his book, it's kind of like the NFL insider if he was Malcolm Gladwell. I mean, Mike, <laughs> Michael will discuss like all these, he'll discuss Warren Buffett and how that can relate to the NFL. And I just don't, it, it, it's like you were ahead of Moneyball in the NFL in a way, not so much statistics, but you've used statistics as well, but you kind of understand personal behavior and how that impacts people in general. Um, my favorite thing is when you talk discuss Hal Davis. John's a huge Steeler fan. Did he ever tell you his point of view about what happened on the immaculate reception? Like, what was 
what was his views? I think John needs to hear this. All right. So uh, in, they were in, first off, they were incorrect. I'll just start there. And then Michael. Right. So let's start at the Tuck game. Okay. So we're playing an old Foxborough Stadium, right? Schaefer Stadium, Foxborough Stadium, you know, wooden bleachers. I'm in the press box. You know, it's the people don't realize it's the first night game ever playoff night game in the history of the NFL. And I actually, I've actually written a screen, not a screenplay, like a, a show as, about a better who basically makes a bunch of money betting that game because he knew it was going to snow in the first night game. And it didn't start snowing. You can ask Screwdog this, uh, Frank, when you talk. It didn't start snowing until we got on the bus at 5 o'clock to go to the stadium or 4 o'clock, whatever the hell time it was we got on the bus. That's when it started snowing. By the time we got to the stadium, there was snow all over the place. So, anyway, that's the, t- the snow game. I'm up in the press box. I'm sitting up there. Uh, and you're with the Raiders now, Mike. I'm, with the Raiders. I'm in the owner's box. I'm not in the I'm in the press box. Al's in the owner's box. So anyway, so I'm sitting there and when Charles tackles Brady and the ball comes out, I get up and say, Yes. Yeah, we got it. I go like just like that. I can still remember doing it. And about three minutes later, this guy who I knew was Art McNally turns around and says to me, You're not gonna get that. That's the tuck. And I'm like, what the hell are you talking about? Like, I've never heard of the tuck before, right? Okay. So, all right. So the tuck happens. We lose the game. Yeah, yeah. There's a thousand reasons why we lost the game besides the tuck. That's, that's a whole other story. So I get back to Oakland. We don't get back to Oakland. We don't take off from Boston that night until that, that day until 7 o'clock the next morning. Uh-huh. We land back in Oakland like at, what, 1 o'clock? I don't know what time it was. When I get to the office uh, – I get a, my phone rings and it's it's him. Uh, the Christie's on the phone. Uh, Mr. Davis would like to talk to you. Oh, uh, did you see that fucking call? I said, yeah, I don't understand. I've never heard of such a thing. And then, I, and then I said to him, I said, well, you know, this guy McNally was right in front of me, and he went off. McNally was the guy who made the immaculate reception. Oh no. Oh. <laughs> on, on that, that he just went, and then then that was like I wish I could have that he no oh, that motherfucker he fucked me, <laughs> and then he went. And I know he was going to get it again, and then that just went off, and you know, and I didn't understand it. You know, I'm a little bit, you know, I was a little bit like like John. I felt like it was like you know, like I thought it was a legal catch and yada yada yada. But you know, anyway, so he just went off, and he's oh that McNally got me again. So. <laughs> The whole thing of the tuck, the whole thing of the Macklin reception was Al felt like the league just used replay to to rule on something that wasn't right. Yeah, because the well, the, I, as a Steeler fan, I think Franco caught it clean. The question comes from the Tatum, Fuqua, who touched it, where was it? Yeah, who first? Because it's incomplete if Tatum touches it first, right? right Nobody right. else can touch it. So that one has always kind of. I love the story. It's NFL lore, but you now I didn't realize that I have a new hero uh, in this <laughs> because I had no clue that there was another player in this. Yeah, Art McNally lived in Pittsburgh too. I think he lived in oh. Pittsburgh. I think, which just 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 destroyed. I mean, just killed. We had a referee. Can't help it. <laughs> Larry. Uh, so there was a referee. Larry, I forget his last name, but he did three. This is how I was. He was always – somebody was out to get us. He – he Larry, I forget his name, Nemers. Larry Nemers was a, a referee, and he lived in Springfield, Missouri. And for three years in a row, the league put him 
as the head official in a game we always would play in Kansas City. And I was convinced that he was there <laughs> to kill us. He made, like, he made like incredibly bad calls. Like I would call Pereira on the phone. I'm like, Mike, that, 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 that you know. And do you realize that this guy's been, and he would have no idea, but Al knew it. I mean, he was, he was obsessed with it. So the tuck and somehow how it links together is Art McNally. Now you wrote, you're, you're writing, you wrote this script. Why is it that there are really no great NFL football movies? I mean, well, like, oh, give me an idea on Oliver Stone's movie. Cause you love Al Pacino, right? Yeah. I but just, he's not a coach. Yeah, no, I think they don't have any. It's like the it's like the draft show. It's like they're doing a cooking show without cooks. I mean, they're doing a football show without really understanding what goes on in a locker room. You know? I think you're Mark Schlereth talk about Schlereth talks about uh, even the NFL nowadays. Why are the Why is the NFL worried about what people outside the NFL think when they're dealing with rules and the game itself? Don't let people outside the game influence the game. It's almost that in Hollywood where they're like. They don't know what they're doing, so they make a bunch of stuff up. They don't ever try and get it right. It, it's like a doctor watching, uh, you know, a uh, house or something like that. One of the the um, medical shows going, well, that's just not how it goes down. That's not even close. But Hollywood can't seem to do that with sports. For some reason, it's even worse. It's horrible. And gambling, the way the gambling is, the way it could be set up, I think it's a really good uh, plan. But like like Homeland, I've been killing Homeland on my podcast because like it makes no sense. Here's this rogue <laughs> lady who's out there on her own. She's supposed to be a CIA agent who upholds the, the rules and, and, and she's just on her own, does whatever the hell she wants, reports to nobody, you know, president you know i mean it's just like like is somebody watching this and like saying like this can't happen is like, she someone you would send to uh report back on a football player not, <laughs> yeah. she probably would have sex with all of them and come back <laughs> and, you know, you know, like, you know no, and then, that's you know, the blame show it on, blame the it on show somebody else you know it's like oh it wasn't my fault you know you know, I'm saving the world. I mean, like is somebody watching this is like is they, they, they they're insulting my intelligence. Uh, we have let's in the last 10 to 15 minutes here. So uh, just some overall thoughts on this this draft last night, other than the uh, that's for just some basics. Anything Joe Burrow going number one, anything uh, that and, and any surprises for you? Was there what what made total sense and what didn't? I thought that, you know, I, I think the way the first, I mean, Tua, I look, I think Tua is, I think it's an injury risk. There's no doubt about that. But obviously they feel comfortable with it in Miami. They know more than I know. So you got to go with that. And I thought the Chargers had to take a young quarterback because next year they have Melvin Ingram. They have Henry, uh, they have Hunter Henry. They've got Joey Bosa and they got Keenan Allen all going to be free agents. So they needed to get a young quarterback so they can give those guys the money. And I thought that that was probably what they needed to do. I think Matt Rule did a really good job getting Derek Brown. I thought Derek Brown was a really good player. I thought he was the third best player in this draft. So I would have taken him early. I thought the top 10 kind of – the reason there was no trades is because once the two quarterbacks went, you know, at six by six, Rule wasn't trading seven. The, the Cardinals didn't want to trade eight. I'm sure Kime could have had an offer for eight. He didn't want to take it. And nine, they weren't trading C.J. Henderson, who the Raiders wanted at 12. So that's why there wasn't any trades. And Cleveland, and once C.J. Henderson came off the board, Cleveland lost their leverage. So I, I thought it kind of – and then once, once you get past 20, it becomes – that's when we get into that, well, no, I didn't have them on my board. I had them in the fifth round. You know, like then you get into all that. 
Don't you think that the amazing part of yesterday's draft, and as I watched it, I started thinking, you know, the teams that are always in the top 15, usually eight out of 10 years, they're in the top 15. There's just yeah. always a consistency there. And as much as it pains me to say it, I think the, the teams that walked away winners, big winners yesterday, nobody's going to talk about, are the Ravens and Chiefs. Yeah, that's right. Because they're, they're the smart team. I mean, Walsh used to say all the time, we're only competing against eight. You know, and, and, and he meant that as – like, look, you know, there's only eight teams that have the right culture. They understand what they need. They scout inside out. And, and, I, and I think the Ravens got queen. It makes 100 tackles. I thought the Seattle guy that they took was a really good player. Everybody had him. Nobody had him in the first round because he's six feet tall. He's a tackling machine, that kid. So, you know, I, I, I thought that that was a good pick. And Bill did exactly what I thought Bill was going to do. He was going to check the temperature, see what it was like you know, cough twice and said and get south as soon as he could. And he did. And now he's in the second round. When you what use that term culture, because yeah. I hear it all the time. What, what is that? What, what does that encompass? Like, because I'm always, uh, I basically know, but I want to know from somebody who's on the inside, what, what are the character, what's the criteria that you think define a culture of an organization? Well, I think it starts really with the leadership, but I think ultimately it's about putting the team first. I think it's about mental toughness, being doing what's right for the team when it's not right for you. I think everything that we do is egoless and driven by non-ego. I think it's all about no one trying to take credit for achievement that we're all in this working together. And I think it's creating an environment. For example, if you were to say to me, what's the Patriots culture? It's pretty simple. Do your job. But here's, the, here's what most people leave out on do your job. They define what your job is. Everybody gets a definition of their job. The other thing is, you know, speak for yourself. Like nobody needs to be speaking for you. Like in a good culture, Aaron Rodgers wouldn't be talking right now. He'd be talking to Matt LaFleur, but he's not talking to the media. Or he's not going on Good Morning and talking to Kay Adams about his problems. So just speak for yourself. Keep it internally, you know, and then, you know, always put the team first. I think that's, that's important. And then be, come to work and be prepared to work. Be attentive and try to get better. I think when you have four grounded principles, then you can develop a culture. And the players that you bring in have to adhere to that. If you get a guy that comes in and says, no, nah, man, I got it. I'm not going to work hard. He's, you're, you're never going to get your culture turned around. And so like for Matt Patricia, who's trying to put the Patriots culture in Detroit, he can't get it ingrained because the players that he has there that he inherited, he can't get them to buy into what he's doing. And so he's trying to change the culture, but you can't change culture unless you get people to buy into it that are already there. Because the players, once they go in the locker room, they have a, you know, they're, they're going to lock, they're going to lobby together. They're not going to fight one another. That's to me, that's what culture is about. It's about egoless and team. And when you got guys taking credit for everything or guys think they're bigger than the program, whether it's the coach, you know, look, I, I don't, you know, I don't fly, you know, I got, I'm, I'm going to have this part of it. You know, you got, everything's for me. I take credit for this, you know, that's a bad culture. How much does culture go back? So it's, I, I've always thought the coach is a reflection of the culture that they looked for. So it's ownership. That's probably more important, but how much of it, cause you mentioned the lions and you start thinking about culture with other teams as a Steeler fan, the culture comes from the fact I'm wearing a Rocky Blyer Jersey. That guy shows up. Bettis comes back, uh, you know, all these legends that wander around there. The Lions don't have that. They don't have a guy, a ghost from the past, come into that locker room and tell them you're screwing this whole thing up. So isn't that an ownership issue? Yeah, because the Lions always hire people to put the culture in. The Steelers owners put the culture in. When Art right. McNally, when, when Art Rooney couldn't win and he changed, he decided to change, he changed the culture by himself. 
I used to ask Jimmy Haslam when I was the GM for one year in Cleveland. I said, Jimmy, you need to tell me what you want for your football team. What culture do you want to build? Let's build it. Because if you buy into it, we'll create it. But if you don't buy into it, you're just going to fire coaches left and right. There's going to be a new guy coming in here every year, which would end up being true. So it starts with the owner. Like, just tell me what kind of football team you want. You want to be a big, fat football team with lazy guys? We'll start draft. We'll get them all. You, what you, want. you know, what do you want? Just tell me what you want. And then you can't change your mind. Don't Michael, you as, as a GM, how much would you have taken? Like, because I always look at the first round, the very first pick as a you can't miss. You can screw that up. Your whole job's gone. But to me, the way the Bengals set up, Burrow's a, potentially an all time quarterback, whatever. But when you need nine people to make your team and culture change, is it smart to take a guy who has played his college football behind five professional linemen? Yeah. Well, look, I think the one thing that kid will do is help change their culture. I think he'll help them. I think because Jeff Van Gundy has a great line, you, your best player must set the tone for intolerance of anything that gets in the way of winning. And I think that that, that kid will do that. That kid will make them work harder. He made LSU work harder. He, they bought into him. And I think that's a huge step for, for Zach Taylor and the whole Cincinnati Bengal group. They need that. They need that badly. Because Mike Brown will let the coach, but Mike Brown changes the culture. Like, here's an example. You know, like, I, I, I'm a diehard 76er fan. I need to go to 76er rehab. It's painful for me to listen to him, to watch him. I die with him. You know, but when, when the owner allows Joel Embiid's dad to sit next to him at courtside, no one says a word. It's okay. No big deal. But if you're Jimmy Butler or you're another player, aren't you wondering, like, why is Embiid so much better than I am that he gets dad gets to sit there and my dad's three rows up? Right. That's culture. That's culture, Frank. Everybody has to be the same. It's, it's So what's good for one is good for all. And I think that the owner controls that. There's so few people that can – Belichick can demand that respect because of the rings. Uh, Phil Jackson in basketball was able to demand a lot of that respect. But I don't know, you know, the kid, I don't think, listen, I look at even my kids and stuff like that. They don't know history the way, uh, you know, players used to know a lot about history and how the game developed. I don't know if they know that anymore. And they're superstars as young kids. I think that's hard for somebody to come in and go, yeah, I, I know how to do this already. You can't tell me. I, I know you're, uh, you know, that. I guess that's part of that culture as well. But yeah. I think you got to educate him. I think you got to teach him it. Like we spent, like you'd be, you would, you would love to hear this monologue. You could do a great monologue on this. Bill teaching the difference between Memorial Day and Veterans Day to the team. Wow. Literally teaches that. You know, like literally will teach subjects about Memorial Day. Literally, if we're playing the Detroit Lions, Bill will bring out video of the Detroit Lions playing in old Tiger Stadium and teach the players about the history of the game. Really? And some of them, some of them will just like, you know, maybe they won't, but by, by the time they're done there, they'll know everything. And that's part of being a coach. That's part, you got to teach the players. Bill Walsh used to say all the time, Marines fight for Marines. And so when you teach the history of your organization to the players, when they first come in as part of their indoctrination into your team, all of a sudden you're going to teach history. That's what you got to do. It's just not one day. It, it, it's a hard thing to do. It's a hard work and process but you got to do it. How do you teach history to a team that's, you know, terrible? Well, you just like the, the Bengals. You just like, look, we're, we're going <laughs> to 
you know, like we got to, we got to start this thing over. It's going to be one day at a time. It's like, how do you get the, how do I lose weight? Well, if I wouldn't stop eating, I would lose, if I stop eating, I'd lose weight. You know, it's got, I got to do put, you know, this is a big thing. We're going to put, we're going to put two days, we got to string some days together. And we're going to, the more we string together, the better off we're going to be. And we're not going to conquer Rome in a day. We got to build this thing up and eventually we're going to get there. Is so being anybody, a Bengal is like being an alcoholic. It's one day at a time. One day at a time. One day <laughs> is there anybody you look at? I, and I'm, I'm, you know, I'm a generic football fan. Um, nothing like you or even John and uh, <laughs> Scott. They, they're much more um, understanding inside the game. But uh, I look at John Lynch, and he's the one guy I go, God, he just looks and feels like an executive. And everything they're doing, I just go, God, I, I think he knows what he's doing. This guy's built. <laughs> so he's got a Lego set, and he's got the instructions, and he's putting all the pieces together one by one. You go, Wow, there aren't a lot of people that seem to be able to do that. Yeah, and, and I think a lot of it's Kyle. I think not to dismiss John, but I think Kyle's really good at it. You know, Kyle, Kyle's dad, he learned from his dad, and, and there's an art to team building. There's a true art to team building, and the Niners get it. I, I, I think the Niners get it as well as anybody. They understand that certain positions you should draft. They understand how to build a team inside out. Yeah, I definitely agree with that. What is your Can one I- little draft <sighs> Sorry about that, Scott. What is your one rule in a draft that was a little bit weird, kind of like you never play cards with a guy who's named after a state? What is your one thing when you go into a draft and go, he does that thing, I don't care how good he is, there's that thing? Well, I I mean, I always had a rule, we're never going to call the kid before we're on the clock, because I did that twice and the phone was busy back when we didn't have call waiting and the kid was getting drafted by somebody else. So I never wanted to drink that, to, to jinx that. So, yeah, but, but I would say, you know, any time that, uh, you know, for me, you, you know, I, I think if I saw if um, – I'm trying to think here. What, what was a pet peeve of mine? You know, um, that's a great question. I got to think about that one. Like a needy girlfriend because when I saw C.D. Lamb last night, I'm like, oh, no. He's oh, already he ripped that phone out of her hand. Like he took that <laughs> phone right out of her hand. Like, hey, you ain't looking at my phone. Give me that thing back, you know. Like, like, yeah, no, I, I, you know, look, I, I think that there's certain guys that you can tell, like, whether they're the lead guy or not, you can see it by the relationships that they have with others. And, and if they're not an alpha, it's kind of hard to change them. Yeah. My, my question was, have you outside of NFL film, is there anything you've watched more than the Sopranos? Uh, no. In your life? No, I probably. Yeah. How no. many episodes? Have you watched each episode four times a piece, six times? Because when you me, listen oh, to oh, Scott, Scott, let me ask you a question. Let me ask you a fucking question, okay? Do <laughs> oh, you think I would be a good uh, uh, general manager? Uh, uh, what kind of fucking culture do you think I would uh, create? <laughs> he created one. You know, uh, I, I probably, I don't know. I, I go through, see, I go through, multiple, well, it all it really relates to my wife. If she's gone and she's out to see my grandkids, that I'm probably going through the seasons pretty rapidly. I'm going to go through them again. But if she's around, she won't tolerate me watching it. So, yeah, I would say probably <laughs> at least 10 times. I would probably say. <laughs> I mean, because every day I quote a line. Like Frank Renzulli is one of the great writers of all time. He wrote seasons one and two. He was on the staff there. Like he makes me laugh. The Italian humor, if you grow up on the East Coast in New Jersey with that humor, the way it's planted in there, like when Uncle Junior's at the when Uncle Junior's at the at the funeral parlor and he's talking about this woman and he says, you know, there's says Maria and she that woman gave me my first hand job. What am I saying? You know, it's like you know, it's like, <laughs> like who would come up with that? You know, there's a woman in a casket and he's talking about getting his first first hand job. 
who yeah. comes up with this shit? It's like too good, you know. Yeah. And then a guy dies on a toilet, you know. A guy dies with a toilet in a tan. A bishadu. A guy dies on that. Like, who thinks of this stuff? Like, it's just it's like well, mm-hmm. because that's happened somewhere in somebody's <laughs> past. Yeah. Because the, it, you don't have to think of it when it's real. Listen, when you've seen it. Yeah, that's I. I think about the stuff in my family. You know, Italians in Chicago and the the things I've heard. Yeah. I, Someday, when they're all dead, I'm writing it down. Because <laughs> you can't get cheese in Chicago without photo meat. <laughs> that was my uncle. And we never, he would get so angry. Uncle Phil, you don't understand, Frankie. Wait a second. How are you back? You're on the program. You're in the program. That's your age, Frankie. Don't worry. Well, I'm going to duck because there's windows. All right. <laughs> I love it. Um, yeah, so we have a, a resident, uh, almost a uh, an intern who is twenty. What? How old is Salehi? Twenty two years old. I met him at an airport. Uh, he's a journalism student at the Cronkite School in, at ASU. Sean Salehi, and he uh, he texted me a little bit earlier. And a lot of times he gets. Uh, I'm sure he's going to have questions about Rockford Files for us at some point, yeah. but, <laughs> and maybe some other things. But he had a question for you, and this is uh, part of his credit. Yeah, uh, Michael, thank you for joining the show. Um, oh, my God. That's the – please, don't, don't, none of these. don't teach you that. Okay, okay, okay. 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 Uh, uh, he's nervous. He's nervous. I'm not. I wanted to ask, as somebody who's been a part of a lot of drafts, there's kind of the pop culture factor that people try to make the drafts be in terms of general managers really being a cutthroat business during these hours of the drafts. And I wanted to ask if you could kind of go into detail. For example, uh, draft day – the NFL produced film um, where they, you know, I want all my picks back, this, that, or the other. And it's just absolutely cutthroat between the teams. How true is that? Like, is there really just kind of a sense of rivalry between certain GMs on draft day? Or is it, is it more of like a brotherhood that everybody understands what they're going through on that day? No, I think there's a lot of jealousy. It's entertainment business. Everybody like, look, this guy, he's making more than me. There's a lot of that. And then, you know, it's a lot of teams might not trade with another team because they don't get along with the GM. Like, it's hard to, you know, like, I don't like this guy. This guy doesn't like me. I can't make a trade with him. So, yeah, there's a lot of that. It's very petty. I mean, the, it's very petty. I mean, we we would be great for my grandmother's card game. You know, a lot of petty. <laughs> Yeah. You know, well, that's yeah. a tough that's a tough balance right where you have yeah. to make the other gms and teams like you enough but you also have to try and get the best of them a little bit if you get the best of them a little bit here and you give it's a give and take kind of thing where hey maybe we get a little bit of the best this trade but we're looking out for you next time and you're going to get back and forth and that's how deals get made yeah, it's hard. It's really challenging. And I mean, look, you just got to be very clinical. Like, look, here's we're going to try to trade this guy. You know, here's the issues. You know, we think he can still do that. But, you know, nobody believes you. Nobody <laughs> believes. Why are you trying to trade that guy? You know, why, why are you trying to get rid of that guy? Well, here's the reason. Now, I, You know, and it goes back. Even if your best friends, they don't believe you. Why did Bill O'Brien trade DeAndre Hopkins? What is the deal with that? Tell me from that perspective. I think he's been trying to trade him since last year. Uh, I think, A, he wants to pay Deshaun Watson a lot of money. He just paid Laramie Tunsil a ton of money. And I think between Deshaun Watson and Tunsil, he wants to build a team around him. I don't think he wanted, I don't think he wanted Hopkins to be the leader in the clubhouse. I think he wanted Watson to be the leader in the clubhouse. And the only way he could get Watson to be the leader was to get Hopkins out of there. 
And, and I think that that's why he made the decision. And I think unless you're really in that locker room and understanding the dynamics around what it takes to coach Hopkins, it's hard for us to judge. Bill's won five of the six uh, South titles. He's done a good job coaching. People make fun of him all the time, but you know nobody really understands how hard it is sometimes to coach a guy when you're trying to change the things in your locker room. And they felt like maybe Watson alone would be a better player. Did you have a trade with a general manager you didn't like that you turned down simply because of that? Well, usually most of the time I was like, Al would tell me who to trade with or what to do, you know. And so I was operating like I didn't like, you know, like when we traded for Trent, we traded a one for Trent Richardson. You know, that was, you know, Joe Banner did the deal. I was behind the deal. So, yeah, you know, you just try to – what you end up doing is if you might not get along with a guy, you try somebody else in your building that could talk to him. You know, so you try to match it up that way. Like if I had to do a deal with Bill, uh, I've traded with Bill before when I was at Oakland, you know, back to New England. And so you have a good relationship or somebody else. But typically it's usually somebody that you're friendly with. Huh. Interesting. Scott, did you have one more question? Yeah, I mean, I think a lot of the – uh, our listeners would want to know, was there a couple players that stand out that are still available that you felt like you, when you uh, checked their film that you thought, Hey, this guy's on my board to be a 22 or a 21. And they were, they're sitting there still. I mean, I love KJ Hamler from Penn state. I think he's going to be a dynamic returner. He's a little undersized. He's small, but he's explosive. I think Byron Evans, the kid from, uh, South Carolina had a little medical issues this year, but I think he's a big, physical, nasty receiver. I think somebody's going to get a really talented player there. And, and, and then when you when I look at the running backs, I think DeAndre Strift is going to go early in the second round. I think there's a lot of good players that fit that team-building mold that you can develop and bring in there. I think this James Lynch from Baylor is one of my favorite players. He's probably not going to get drafted till the bottom of the second round today, but he's a guy that I think, you know, as Belichick would say, just put him on the pro board because he's going to play a long time. Who's Taylor's your sleeper still available? Huh? Taylor? Uh, the running back from Wisconsin? Jonathan Taylor. Yeah, he's right from – so I live in this little beach town called Ocean City, New Jersey. He's from Berlin, New Jersey, which is about a half hour from here. State 100-meter champion – Al Davis would have drafted him. Oh, fuck. I got to have all those fast guys. <laughs> my favorite Al Davis story of all time. Well, there's a lot of them. But so, so when he drafts Ted Watts, Ted Watts is the state 100-meter champion in Florida. He went to Texas Tech. He drafts Ted Watts in the first round. When Ted Watts comes out to, comes out to, to meet him, Al goes up to him, oh, there's my man, Teddy Watts. There he is. I had to have him. He's the 100-meter champion in Florida. And Teddy Watts says, oh, thank God that white guy slipped out of the box because I could never beat him. <laughs> <laughs> and Al almost shit his pants, almost shit his white pants. And, and who are you talking about? And the white guy was Chris Collinsworth. Oh, <laughs> that's a great story. Oh, my gosh, I love that. That's awesome. So, Leahy, did you have one more thing that you texted me earlier? Um, yeah, it was it was just uh, kind of how the culture is affected by owners. I mean, no, I the right. one about the quarterbacks and in interviews. I don't. Oh, care about okay, that. okay, okay. So, yeah. yeah, that that was more. I mean, going back to how ESPN conducted the draft, one thing that I thought was very interesting was you have every every time the draft is in person, they try to pull drafty, uh, draftees that are attending the draft in person off to the side right on stage so they can talk to them, get their reactions, this, that, or the other. They talked to two players in the first round yesterday on ESPN. It was the two quarterbacks that got drafted, Joe Burrow 
and Jordan Love. They didn't talk to Chase Young. They didn't talk to Jeff Okuda. They didn't talk to Derek Brown. Uh, Andrew Thomas, who was kind of a surprise to a lot of people. What were your thoughts on the fact that they kind of went away again from focusing on the players and going more on the backstories of them? You know, I think that's the worldwide lead. I think they have an agenda that they think is going to permeate through the audience. I'm not saying that I, I do, but I think they think they know. I don't particularly enjoy it. I can hit mute pretty quickly. So, you know, uh, uh, that's just, I think that's that's the way they visualize it. Like, I Wait a minute. Michael, you weren't upset that they didn't have a red carpet to, to talk about what everybody had, unlike every other football fan in America? I was, I was up in arms yesterday. I, I was not. I mean, look, I want to know what the guys – I want somebody to tell me why they drafted them. And I think the fantasy element is why people like to draft so much too because if they want to get their tips on their fantasy picks. Like, hey, I take this guy. Take C.D. Lamb in fantasy draft. Take him early because, you know, he'll be the third receiver. He'll get the third corner, yada, 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 that kind of stuff. That's what I would like. But, you know, what am I? I'm, I'm, I'm watching it. So. Well, Michael, this has been uh, great. I, I don't know. I knew uh, Scott thought this was going to be well, – this is probably Scott's favorite podcast. Oh, um, <laughs> Easily. I knew it was going to I mean, be – Look, I, look Dennis Miller was great, but, but Dennis Miller was like Don Rickles, smart Don Rickles. Us. He was just ripping us left and right. So I can't even listen to that episode. It was so good. It makes me feel bad about myself. Where this, I learned. I learned. This was uh, awesome. My it. favorite Rickle story. Sinatra tells a great Rickle story. So Sinatra's in a restaurant and Rickles is at the restaurant. And so Rickles comes over to him and says, hey, Frank, I'm, I've got this girl with me tonight. I'm really trying to impress her. A little later, can you come over to the table? And, and talk to me and like, you know, so we, she knows that I know you and that'll really help me with her. And so Frank said, oh, sure, of course I'll come over and do it. No problem. So a little later in the night, Frank, as he's get done dinner, he waltzes over to Don's table and he says, Don, how you doing? Frank here. And Rickle says, Jesus Christ, Frank, can't you see I'm eating? Leave me alone. <laughs> <laughs> Scott, uh, uh, give uh, uh, give every plug that you know for Michael Lombardi because I know that that'll uh, that'll be your favorite. Thank you, part. Frank. I appreciate you. Yeah, you gotta you gotta listen to GM Street with uh, Adnan GM Burke Shuffle. and GM Shuffle. GM Shuffle. I'm sorry, yeah. I get a mixed up. Huge fan, huge fan. Won't stop talking about it. You gotta get the book. You gotta get the book. I'm the actually. Book is, I don't read it. Change at all. your life. I don't read it all, and I've been sold on reading the book. Get the audio. Thank you. Uh, yeah. That's a better – you know what? That's what I'm going to do. Because uh, I'm t- I'll read it to you. It was – As Al Davis? No, I, I should. Every time the Al Davis part came up in the book, I wanted to go, no, fuck, I can't do this. <laughs> what What else do you have? The uh, You've got a bunch of stuff I going do, on. I, I write for The Athletic. I do VEASAN on uh, – as you've been so great to come on that show, Made Our Day. And I write this – email called the daily coach, which is an inspirational email for coaches, teachers, anybody who's in business to try to take some of the things that Scott was so nice to say, to try to take this Malcolm Gladwell approach and try to apply it to leadership as through sports. So that's what we try to do. All right. This was awesome. Thank you Thanks, so much. What, what do we have in stock for our, what's our next video that we're coming up with? I don't even know yet. I, I've got, uh, I, I haven't even thought I, I, I was looking at some generic stuff, but the, the, um, the, uh, the Kuiper thing worked well enough yesterday that I'm like, okay, I need to relax a little bit. I had some things about Schefter that I was going to do, like him warming up, just saying, uh, according to my sources, she sells, she sells, but she, oh, shit. 
you know, just doing some outtakes of him. But they, there was no use for any insiders last night. Nobody was doing anything, so it felt it didn't feel topical. So uh, Jerry has know. a little lamb. That's all I want to say. <laughs> what was your line last night with the Jerry Jones line? That was great. Uh, you texted it to me. Which the shepherd. One? Which oh one? yeah, when he said, uh, uh, "I have to do my Jerry Jones like this, Michael." Uh, I am the shepherd. And I have brought you the lamb. <laughs> <laughs> I do, I do, I do post surgery, Jerry. Frank does, uh, you know, after like he's comfortable in his skin, Jerry. I do the one that's still in, like, just got the lift. Okay, that's so good. I lo- I can listen to I can listen to Frank do Jerry all day. Long. <sighs> it's so funny. It's so good. But all right, it's been great for me. I appreciate. It. Thank you for all no. the help. Thank you much. Appreciate you. Bye bye. Thank Thanks. you.